Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. On a cold Monday morning in November 1884, a canvas banner was unfurled over a shop window on Whitechapel Road in London. The crude painting showed a humanoid creature with an elephant's trunk rampaging through the jungle. It was monstrous, unfathomable. It was the Elephant Man, half a man and half an elephant. A top-hatted showman barked at the doctors and students trailing into the London hospital right across the street. For just two pence, they could see the specimen for themselves, but ladies in delicate health were advised not to step inside. The elephant man's condition could be quite a shock. As the man led the curious spectators in, he warned them, Ladies and gentlemen, Brace yourselves to witness one who is probably the most remarkable human being ever to draw the breath of life. And then he pulled back the curtain. Standing on the small stage was a horribly disfigured man covered in folds of drooping, lumpy skin. His right arm was twice as big as the left, ending in a massive, fin-like hand. His feet were oversized, flat, and wrinkled, like an elephant's. His head was bizarrely distorted and covered in hard tumors. A bony mass protruded from his upper lip, and buried behind the swollen, misshapen brow were a pair of brown eyes, gentle, bright, and unmistakably human. Imagine sitting across the desk from your doctor. The splotchy x-rays and MRIs are clipped up on the wall. The test results are in a manila folder tilted just out of your line of sight. Questions are already forming in your mind. 
Is it serious? What's my chance of recovery? Will my insurance pay for this? Imagine your doctor looking you in the eye and saying, we don't know. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Joseph Carey Merrick, who became well-known as the Elephant Man in the 1880s. This week, we'll explore the development of Merrick's baffling condition and his doctor's attempts to diagnose it. Next week, we'll look at his improbable rise to fame in London high society and the research that might have finally explained his illness. Today, according to the CDC, about 3% of all newborns are born with congenital disorders, commonly known as birth defects. This can include anything from cleft palates to heart malformations to extra fingers or toes. Congenital disorders were just as common in the late 19th century as they are today, but the elephant man's symptoms were more extreme than anything his doctors had ever seen. From the age of five, Joseph Merrick began to exhibit strange bony growths on his face and skull. His feet and right arm grew out of proportion to the rest of his body, and his spine was curved by severe scoliosis. The skin all over his body took on a rough, lumpy texture, and folds of loose, overgrown skin hung down from his head, back, and chest. The condition progressed over the course of his life, and by the time he reached adulthood, his symptoms were so shocking that he couldn't leave the house without causing a panic on the streets. During Joseph's lifetime, very little was known about human genetics, but his unique set of symptoms helped researchers connect the dots between a few disorders that weren't thought to have an underlying cause. For the next two episodes, we'll look at the evolving theories about what caused his condition. Was it caused by trauma his mother suffered while he was in the womb? Was it a combination of skin disorders known as dermatolysis and pachydermatocella? And if so, how do his bone deformities fit into the picture? Finally, we'll look at genetic research from later decades that might explain the root of his symptoms. But first, let's start with the theory that Joseph himself accepted as the truth. Maternal impression. For this, we have to go back to the very beginning. In May of 1862, 
Wombwell's traveling menagerie passed through Leicester, England. The menagerie was a collection of exotic animals, giraffes, leopards, zebras, lions, and elephants. Mary Jane Merrick, a 25-year-old Sunday school teacher, was in the crowd watching the animals pray down the street. She was six months pregnant with her first child, and so far the pregnancy had gone smoothly. She kept a hand on her belly, dreaming of all the things they would do and see together once her child was born. Suddenly, the crowd swelled forward and Mary was pushed into the road. She fell right in the path of the elephants. She looked up to see a pair of thick, wrinkled feet stomping toward her. She scrambled out of the way just in time. As the elephants brushed past, she caught her breath and checked herself for injuries. She and her unborn child had made it out just fine. Three months later, on August 5th, 1862, Mary gave birth to a perfectly healthy baby boy. They named him Joseph, after his father. Baby Joseph was in fine health for the first few years of his life. His first medical scare didn't come until age five, when he tripped and fell, badly injuring his left hip. The wound became infected before it could heal, inflaming the hip bone and causing permanent damage to the joint. This made it difficult and painful for the young boy to move. For the rest of his life, Joseph Merrick would never be able to walk properly. He could only shuffle across the playground with his cane while the other children ran and played. To make matters worse, while his hip injury was still barely healing, Mary noticed something strange happening to her son's face. A swollen lump was growing out of his upper lip. At first it was only slightly raised, as if he'd fallen down and landed on his face. Nothing to be too concerned about. But as the months progressed, it grew into a tumor that ran across his right cheek, pressing his upper lip outwards. Gradually, other symptoms started to develop. His skin, especially on his back and chest, became loose and rough. His right arm grew out of proportion, as did his feet, which were turning into thick, shapeless stumps. And soon, the hard lump of flesh on his lip was several inches long, resembling, rather unfortunately, an elephant's trunk. Mary's mind went back to the parade she'd witnessed while pregnant. The elephant encounter must have scared her so badly it affected the baby in her womb. Joseph was marked from before birth by the memory of his mother's fear. As bizarre as it sounds, this was actually a common medical theory at the time. Maternal impression, or the idea that a mother's thoughts and emotions could affect a developing fetus, gained popularity in the Middle Ages. It was believed that if a woman was particularly sad during a pregnancy, the child might be born with a predisposition towards depression or other mental illnesses. Or, if a mother was traumatized by a certain animal, the baby would be born with resemblance to that animal. This idea was based in folklore more than biology. By the late 19th century, the theory was already falling out of favor as doctors gained a better understanding of genetics. But while there's no evidence that specific thoughts or fears, like a run-in with a circus elephant, can cause birth defects, 
research does suggest that a mother's lifestyle, diet, and stress levels can impact a fetus's development. The body's stress response is regulated by the corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH. This hormone is secreted by the hypothalamus, the part of the brain that regulates most bodily functions. During pregnancy, CRH is also produced by the placenta, which can lead to highly elevated levels of stress hormones in the bloodstream. A 1996 study by developmental psychologist Janet A. DiPietro found that in mothers who reported high levels of stress or depression, their fetuses exhibited higher heart rates and were less responsive to external stimuli. Both of these factors are associated with an increased risk of anxiety and emotional regulation problems in childhood. This suggests that a mother can, in a sense, pass on anxiety or depression to their child. Exposure to stress hormones can also impact organ development. According to a 2008 study in developmental psychobiology, quote, during the last trimester of pregnancy, Exposure to the stress hormone cortisol is critical for the maturation of the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, renal systems, and overall fetal growth. However, there isn't sufficient evidence linking maternal stress to more severe congenital disorders like the symptoms five-year-old Joseph Merrick was exhibiting. It's also unlikely that one brief stressful event, like a sudden fall during a parade, would affect hormone levels enough to harm a developing fetus. But in the 1860s, maternal impression due to the elephant encounter was the best explanation anyone could offer, and five-year-old Joseph seemed to accept it. He grew into a lonely, shy child who spent most of his time reading. Mary encouraged his love of learning. As a Sunday school teacher herself, she made sure her son's health issues didn't keep him out of class. The family's second child, William, was born without any medical issues to speak of. It appeared that whatever was wrong with Joseph, at least it didn't run in the family. But in 1867, the same year Joseph started showing his symptoms, Mary gave birth to their third child, a daughter named Marion. Records indicate that she was disabled from birth, but the exact nature of her disability isn't clear. Congenital disorders are often caused by hereditary genetic problems. Even if both parents appear perfectly healthy, they still might be carrying genetic mutations that can be passed down to their children. If Joseph and Marion both had similar symptoms, it's possible that they both inherited the same mutation. But it's also possible that the two children's health problems were unrelated. There are many factors that can cause congenital disorders, and we don't know enough about Marion's disability to suggest that it had anything in common with Joseph's. In spite of his ever-worsening health problems, Joseph's early childhood was mostly happy. Then, in 1873, another health-related tragedy struck the Merrick family. Joseph's mother Mary suddenly fell ill and died from bronchial pneumonia. It was devastating for 10-year-old Joseph. It apparently wasn't as devastating for Joseph Sr., because within two years of his wife's death, he had remarried to the family's landlady, Emma Wood Antill. 
Emma was a widow with two daughters of her own, and the new stepsisters made Joseph's young life miserable. By this point, Joseph's afflictions had progressed from mildly unusual to downright disturbing, and the other children never let him forget it. The snout-like tumor on his mouth and cheek had grown considerably, making it increasingly difficult for him to speak. To make matters worse, another growth was forming on his forehead, and sacks of spongy skin now hung down from the back of his skull. A foul odor emanated from the skin growths, no matter how often he bathed. Twelve-year-old Joseph was always the odd one out, whether it was at home or at school. To add injury to insult, his hip problems made it impossible for him to run away from the bullies. Just a year after his father's remarriage, Joseph left school at the customary age of 13. At the insistence of his stepmother, he got a job at a cigar factory to do his part in supporting the family. This job was fine at first. It didn't require much walking, and he didn't have to interface with the public. But by the time he was 15, his right hand had grown so large and heavy that it was impossible for him to roll cigars. He had no choice but to leave his job. However, unemployment wasn't an option. The family's finances were tight, and Joseph's stepmother, Emma, didn't have any sympathy for his disability. More than once, Emma set his plate down for dinner with a sharp remark that it was more food than he had earned. In a misguided attempt to keep the peace, Joseph's father put him to work at the family shop in a role he thought would be well-suited to the boy's condition, door-to-door sales. Why Joseph Sr. thought his disabled, shockingly deformed son would find success as a traveling salesman is a mystery for another day. But undaunted by the challenge ahead, 15-year-old Joseph hobbled through the city, lugging his father's wares in one hand and his walking cane in the other. He knocked on the door of each residence, knowing that any unsuspecting housewife who answered would simply scream and slam the door in his face. If a male homeowner answered the door, there was a better chance they might stand and gawk instead of immediately fleeing in fear. When this happened, Joseph launched into his best sales pitch, but because of the growth on his lip, it was nearly impossible for anyone to understand what he was saying. As he limped through the streets, a crowd of spectators would gather around, staring and whispering. He tried to persevere. After all, he was used to being teased for his appearance. But it was impossible to sell his goods when he was constantly mobbed on the streets. Joseph was beaten severely by his father when he came home without meeting his daily sales quota. By age 16, he stopped coming home at all, spending whatever money he made on food and cheap lodging houses. His only comfort was a small painted portrait of his mother, which he carried with him everywhere. She had always encouraged him to be his best, even in spite of his condition. If she was watching over him, there was nothing he couldn't overcome. But positive thinking couldn't change reality. Living on his own was unsustainable. 
On the Monday after Christmas in 1879, 17-year-old Joseph packed his bags and dragged himself through the iron gates of the Lester Union workhouse. In an effort to combat poverty, the British government set up workhouses where unemployed or infirm citizens could perform menial labor for room and board. To encourage the poor to find their own jobs instead of relying on the government, the conditions in the workhouses were so horrifying that only the most desperate would resort to applying. Joseph was given a uniform and led through the drab stone corridors to his dormitory, where he'd share a room with as many men as they could physically fit inside. Every morning at 6 a.m., he was woken up for a breakfast of bread and gruel. He'd work from 7 in the morning to 6 at night, chopping wood or unraveling old pieces of rope. After dinner, he went back to the dorms and sat down to sleep. Because of the heavy masses of flesh growing from the back of his skull, Lying down strained his neck and made it difficult to breathe. He had to sleep sitting up, with his knees pulled up to his chest, his arms wrapped around his legs, and his head resting forward on his knees. The next morning, Joseph would wake up from a very uncomfortable night of sleep and get ready for another day of menial work. This was his daily routine for a soul-crushing four years. The only bright spot came in 1882, about halfway through his stay. The elephant trunk tumor on his lip had grown to be eight or nine inches long, and he could no longer move his mouth enough to chew, so he was taken to the infirmary. The surgeons had no useful advice on what was causing Joseph's condition or how to cure it, but they were able to remove nearly four ounces of flesh from his upper lip, just enough that he was able to open and close his mouth again. And then it was back to the workhouse. For an intelligent, educated young man like Joseph, being locked away for a lifetime of labor was a depressing prospect. He wanted to see the world. He wanted to live life. But what was there to do if he couldn't walk or talk or roam the streets without causing a panic? The answer came from a newspaper advertisement. Sam Torr's Gaiety Palace of Varieties, the most buzzworthy music hall in Leicester. Joseph knew the place well. It was just around the corner from his childhood home. For his next big spectacle, Sam Torr was looking for curiosities, novelties, as some would say, freaks of nature. Joseph Merrick had found the perfect career. Coming up, The Elephant Man steps into the limelight. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. 
you won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. After four years in the Leicester Union workhouse, 21-year-old Joseph Merrick saw a way out of poverty. His physical differences, painful and restrictive as they were, didn't have to hold him back. In the right business, they could be a valuable asset in early 1884, Joseph wrote to Sam Tor, a local comedian and music hall proprietor who was interested in exhibiting so-called curiosities. Tor came to the workhouse to meet with the inquiring young man, and after one look at Joseph Merrick, Tor knew he was going to be a star. He immediately put together a team of businessmen to manage the newcomer's career. In August 1884, two days before his 22nd birthday, Joseph checked himself out of the workhouse and started his new life as a traveling novelty exhibit. His first stop was the Beehive Music Hall in Nottingham, where he made his debut as the Elephant Man, half man and half elephant. When the curtain rose, Joseph was met with the same response as any other day of his life utter shock and terror. But this time, he was getting paid for it. There was controversy, especially in the uptight Victorian era, regarding the morality of these novelty shows. On the one hand, it seemed exploitative and degrading to put people with disabilities on stage and charge crowds of people to gawk at them. On the other, it was a lucrative career for people who couldn't otherwise work. It was typical for showmen and their exhibitions to split the profits 50-50, with all the overhead costs, food and lodgings coming out of the showman's half. Most freak-of-nature acts made more money than even the most successful actors and musicians in London, all without even getting up from their seats. Joseph Merrick would have been no exception. In fact, the problem was that Joseph was a little too good at shocking the masses. Word about him spread quickly, and since his appearance wasn't easily forgettable, no one felt the need to come back for repeat showings. Within a few days, every interested viewer had already had their fill. Then it was time to move on to the next town. By autumn, Joseph had made his rounds through the Midlands and set his sights on the big leagues, London. The Elephant Man's reputation had reached the ears of Tom Norman, a quick-witted, ambitious young showman who owned a dozen or more exhibition shops around the city. Sam Tor had realized that Joseph's rapid-fire touring was unsustainable, and he was eager to pass him along to a more permanent home before they ran into problems. Tom Norman's shop seemed like a perfect solution. So in November of 1884, 
Joseph and his touring manager took a train to London to meet with him. Joseph was dressed in his signature traveling outfit, a swooping floor-length black opera cloak, a giant black felt cap, and a woolen scarf wrapped around his face. Under the layers of dark fabric, his body was a shapeless, mysterious mass, unknowable to any passers-by. Once they met up with Tom Norman, Joseph nervously removed his hat and unwound his scarf. Norman's immediate reaction was, Oh, God, I can't use you. Even by freak show standards, Joseph's deformities were extreme. But after the initial shock, Norman looked closer and saw a quiet pleading in Joseph's eyes. Yes, his condition was horrifying, but turning his suffering into a spectacle was the only way he could make a living. Norman couldn't turn away such an unfortunate soul. And besides, he'd foolishly signed a contract committing to the deal before the meeting even took place. Norman extended a hand and said, Well, Mr. Merrick, I'll call you Joseph, if I may. The two men ventured back to Norman's shop on Whitechapel Road. Norman was around Joseph's age, 24 to his 22. The young men struck up a fast friendship as soon as they moved into their lodgings in the East End, which Norman described as rough and ready. To cut costs, Norman had a habit of rapidly moving in and out of lodgings before the landlord could come around to collect rent. This meant they had to keep furniture to a minimum. There were two small beds with a curtain hung over Joseph's side of the room for privacy. There was a small stage platform hidden behind another curtain. There was a gas burner ring for heat. And that was about it. Directly across the street was the London Hospital and its attached medical college. When the show opened its doors at midday the next Monday in November 1884, it almost immediately attracted a crowd of curious doctors and medical students. Norman had acquired a set of canvas posters to hang across the front of the shop, depicting a man with an elephant trunk trampling through the jungle. After meeting Joseph, Norman realized this may be a liability, as running was definitely not a trick in his repertoire. Of course, sensationalized ads like these were always taken with a grain of salt by viewers, but this pointed to a larger problem. Joseph's ailments were so terrible, he couldn't be marketed in the same way as Norman's other acts, like the armless carpenter or the balloon-headed baby. If he wanted to sell the story of the elephant man, he'd have to take a different angle. That angle was pity. As Norman drew back the curtain, he told the audience, Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you please not to despise or condemn this man on account of his unusual appearance. Remember, we do not make ourselves, and were you to prick or cut Joseph, he would bleed, and that blood would be red, the same as yours or mine. It took viewers a moment to take in the figure before them, the huge sacks of flesh hanging from his back and chest, the massive bony growths covering his head, the twisted asymmetrical stature, but audiences generally left the show feeling sympathetic towards Joseph. 
The true horror of the exhibit was that, beneath the misshapen layers of spongy skin, he was just a terribly unlucky person. The biggest nuisances were the medical spectators who hung around after the show, asking dozens of questions and holding up the line outside. They never had any useful advice to offer. If they wanted to know about the Elephant Man's family history or progression of symptoms, they could buy a copy of his autobiography for a small additional charge. The three-page pamphlet, titled The Life and Adventures of Joseph Carey Merrick, Half a Man and Half an Elephant, leads with a story about Joseph's mother meeting the parade of elephants. Then there's a detailed, somewhat poetic description of his physical condition. Quote, The measurement around my head is 36 inches. There is a large substance of flesh at the back, as large as a breakfast cup. The other part, in a manner of speaking, is like hills and valleys, all lumped together, while the face is such a sight that no one could describe it. Next came a few paragraphs complaining about his stepmother, a brief blurb about his disastrous career as a peddler, and an assertion that, in making my first appearance before the public, I may say I'm as comfortable now as I was uncomfortable before. The pamphlet ends with a few lines borrowed from a poem by Isaac Watts. Was I so tall, could reach the pole, or grasp the ocean with a span? I would be measured by the soul, the mind's the standard of the man. The piece was a bestseller. All 1,000 copies sold out within a couple of weeks, and all of the proceeds went directly to Joseph. Since all his living expenses were taken out of Norman's half of the admission fees, he was able to set aside every penny. His dream was to save up enough to buy a small house out in the countryside where he could live in peace and independence. Just a few weeks after the exhibit opened, one visitor offered something even more useful than money, medical advice. Early one morning, Dr. Frederick Treves strayed from his usual path toward London Hospital and ventured toward the row of shops across the road. The halls of the medical school were abuzz with stories about this fabled elephant man. At 31 years old, Dr. Treves was already a force to be reckoned with. He'd lectured at the Royal College of Surgeons. He'd won the prestigious Jacksonian Prize for an essay on intestinal obstructions. He'd written a surgical textbook that became an industry standard. Now a surgeon and professor at the London Hospital, Treves instructed his students to be decisive and confident. Quote, The patient is not interested to know it might be measles or it might be a toothache. The patient wants to know what is the matter, and it is your business to tell him, or he will go to a quack who will tell him at once. He was also known to be a bit of a showman. Two years earlier, Treves had given a presentation in Kensington on the dress of the period. He brought a human skeleton, a mock-up of an ancient Greek-style dress, and a life-size cast of Bertolt Torvaldsen's Venus with the Apple, and used them to demonstrate his suggested improvements on the era's fashion. He did have a point about the dangers of tight corsets, but what his colleagues took away from the presentation was that Treves had a flair for the dramatic. 
And if the rumors were true, the man inside Tom Norman's novelty shop would make an even more exciting exhibit for Treves' next presentation. When Treves arrived at the shop that morning in November 1886, he was greeted by the assistant boy, Jimmy, who had been instructed to answer, I don't know, to every question he was asked by visitors. Was this the home of the elephant man? Where's the shop's proprietor? How can he be reached? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. After a while, Treves snapped, You don't know much, do you? Jimmy replied cheekily that he did know where Mr. Norman was, but the information would cost him sixpence. Treves paid up, Jimmy whistled, and Norman poked his head out of a coffee shop down the road. Then, seeing their irritated guest, Norman immediately poked his head back inside. The meeting was already off to a tough start. Annoyed, Treves stomped down to the coffee shop and asked the man, Are you Norman, the showman? Ignoring the accusatory tone, he answered, That is my name, sir, unfortunately. Norman grabbed a bag of biscuits and a jug of coffee from the counter and walked Dr. Treves back to the shop. The private showing would cost him one shilling, six times the usual admission fee, and Joseph only had time to see the doctor for 15 minutes. He kept a tight schedule, being a nationwide star and all. Treves was led inside the dark, dusty room. Norman pulled back a curtain to reveal a huddled, misshapen, horribly smelly figure sitting on a stool near a gas burner, wrapped in a blanket for warmth. When he stood up, the blanket fell to the ground, revealing, in Treves' words, the most disgusting specimen of humanity that I have ever seen. Treves gave Joseph a quick once-over, but before he could examine him too thoroughly, Norman shooed him out, insisting it was time for them to get on with their breakfast. The doctor gave Norman his card and asked that his strange exhibit visit his office across the street when their day was done. He made no promises of a cure. He seemed just as baffled by Joseph's condition as anyone else, but there was no harm in trying. So when the final showing wrapped for the day, Joseph put on his black cloak and hat and shuffled across the street to the London hospital. After nearly two decades of suffering, he hoped his medical mystery might finally be solved. Coming up, Joseph sits down for his first medical examination. Now, back to the story. A few weeks after his novelty show opened in November 1886, Joseph Merrick received a visit from a renowned surgeon named Frederick Treves. He agreed to visit Treves' office at the London Hospital in search of an answer to his horrifying deformities. In his notes on the examination, Treves observed that his subject, whose name he erroneously wrote down as John Merrick, was shy, confused, and frightened. Because of his difficulty speaking, making facial expressions, or otherwise reacting to anything that happened around him, Treves assumed that Joseph was intellectually disabled. He later admitted, This conviction was no doubt encouraged by the hope that his intellect was the blank I imagined it to be. That he could appreciate his position was 
unthinkable. As we've seen, Joseph was not only highly intelligent, but also well-educated. Treves' condescending attitude did not endear him to his patient. Treves examined Joseph's skin and noted two distinct types of abnormalities. There was the soft, loose tissue growing beneath the skin, causing thick folds of flesh to hang down from his head, back, and chest. Then, on the surface, there were patches of warts of varying sizes that gave the skin a cauliflower-like texture. Treves deduced that these warts, which were mostly clustered around his skull and back, were responsible for the foul stench that followed Joseph around. We can only hope that he didn't make this observation aloud. Also of note were the misshapen and overgrown bones in his skull, face, feet, and right arm. However, Treves wasn't sure if the skin and bone deformities were caused by the same underlying disorder. There were signs of an old injury and infection in his left hip, which Treves blamed for his curving spine and awkward posture. The same hip disease could be responsible for his other bone problems. As the examination wore on, Treves began to realize that the high-pitched, melodious sounds escaping from Joseph's mouth weren't animalistic yelps. There were words in the English language. The elephant man could speak. Now that he knew he could get some answers from the subject himself, Treves asked Joseph if any of his family members had deformities. Joseph responded that he had no siblings, and apart from his mother's run-in with the circus elephant, there was nothing of note in his parents' medical histories. Joseph, of course, had two siblings, one of whom did have a disability of some sort. It's not clear whether Treves misheard Joseph's response or if he gave the doctor false information on purpose. Regardless, Treves ruled out the possibility that the condition was inherited. He didn't seem convinced that the elephant incident had anything to do with it either. It also definitely was not elephantiasis, a condition that causes swelling and thickening of the limbs or other body parts. Despite its name, elephantiasis has nothing to do with elephants. It's a parasitic disease carried by mosquitoes in tropical regions. Since Joseph had never left England, it was nearly impossible for him to have contracted it. Beyond that, his symptoms weren't consistent with the disease. Elephantiasis is caused by a buildup of fluid in the lymphatic system, which causes swelling in the affected areas. Joseph's enlarged head, arms, and feet were due to skeletal problems. Overgrown bones in the arm and feet, and unexplained bony growths on the face and skull. After taking a few photographs for further study, Treves told Joseph he was free to go. Within a few days, Treves once again contacted Tom Norman and asked if Mr. Merrick would appear before a panel of experts at the Pathological Society of London. The Pathological Society was one of the most respected medical organizations in England, drawing London's best pathologists, physicians, and biologists together for bi-monthly conferences. When the group convened on the evening of December 2nd, 1884, they were prepared to see Dr. Frederick Treves exhibit two tumors on the oral cavity. 
There was no forenotice that those tumors would be connected to the body of one Joseph Carey Merrick, half a man and half an elephant. Several of the doctors present had already seen Joseph at the little shop on Whitechapel Road, but they were surprised, to say the least, when Treves unveiled the same freak show exhibit at the front of the conference room. Joseph stood there naked and silent, while Treves spun him around and pointed out each and every one of his deformities to the room full of wide-eyed spectators. Treves had hoped some of the other attendees might have insight into his patient's condition. But apart from some gasps, complaints, and calls for decency, no one had anything useful to add. Joseph was left with the exceedingly vague diagnosis of congenital deformity. It was definitely a problem he was born with, but beyond that, the doctors didn't have a clue. He went back to his freak shop, disappointed and dejected. He told Tom Norman he wasn't going back to the hospital again. It was one thing to put himself on exhibition when he was being paid for it and when the conditions were under his own control. But over there, he said, he was stripped naked and felt like an animal in a cattle market. The next week, Treves was back at the shop. He told Norman there were several distinguished visitors at the hospital who wanted to meet the extraordinary Mr. Merrick. Norman told him to get lost. Joseph had made up his mind, and his days as a medical specimen were over. Treves was agitated. It seemed to Norman that he was afraid of losing face among his colleagues if he returned empty-handed. This was something the showman could sympathize with, so he went inside to see if Joseph might consider giving it one more try. Joseph fully refused. He told Norman that if Trees and his colleagues wanted to see him, they could visit during business hours and pay two pence like everybody else. Treves wasn't very happy with this answer. It seemed to him that the showman was trying to keep his moneymaker under lock and key. To Tom Norman, it seemed like Treves was the one who was trying to exploit Joseph. Only a few days after that visit, the police gave notice that the Elephant Man show was to be closed down immediately. Norman suspected, with no real evidence, that Treves was responsible for drawing the law's attention. By late 1884, there was a vocal backlash against novelty shows, mostly from the upper classes, who saw the practice as exploitative and immoral. Exhibitions were being forcibly closed all over London. After only a few wildly successful weeks together, Joseph Merrick and Tom Norman had to part ways. Joseph had already saved up 50 pounds, the equivalent of over $7,000 today. It would keep him in comfort for a while, but if he didn't find more work, he'd be back in the poorhouse within a year. So Joseph reconnected with Sam Tor, his original manager. Throughout the spring of 1885, he took his act on the road once again, joining a traveling circus across the Midlands. Joseph had his own wagon in the caravan, mostly because the constant stench from his skin made it unpleasant to share a room with him. He also had his own unofficial bodyguards, 
two young boys and trained fighters named Bertram and Harry who were billed as the Boxing Midgets. On one occasion, during a fair in Northampton, a group of kids were taunting Joseph, trying to pull off his signature black cloak. According to Bertram, Harry broke up the commotion, cornered the group's ringleader, and, quote, laid the boy out, completely out. After that, Bertram and Harry made a habit of following Joseph around to ward off harassment. Once they got accustomed to Joseph's manner of speech, the three of them became close friends. Bertram was only nine or ten years old, but he sat up late listening to the 22-year-old Joseph muse on literature and religion. But just as Joseph was making himself at home, his success was once again threatened by the law. His extreme condition was drawing too much attention to the traveling circus, and they could barely stay in each town for a few days before they were shut down by the police. Fearing a serious legal battle, the carnival's proprietor finally removed Joseph from his roster. He went back to Sam Tor, who presented him with another option, a continental tour. Freak shows were still flourishing on mainland Europe. In April and May of 1885, a series of advertisements ran in the entertainment newspaper, The Era. The greatest monstrosity of the age, the Elephant Man, is out of engagement, would only show on the continent. For photos and terms, apply to agent Mr. Sam Tor. By summer, Joseph's wish was granted. He was shepherded off to Europe with a showman named Mr. Ferrari. And while he embarked on his international tour, Frederick Treves was keeping Joseph's reputation alive in London. In March of 1885, Treves brought his notes and photographs of Joseph back to the Pathological Society. This time, when he finished his presentation, another doctor rose to make an observation. Dr. Radcliffe Crocker was a specialist in skin diseases at the University College Hospital in London. He suggested that the two types of skin abnormalities Treves noted, Joseph's loose folds of overgrown flesh and lumpy patches of rough warts, should be classified as dermatolysis and pachydermatosula, respectively. Dermatolysis, also known as cutis laxa, is a degenerative disorder that affects the elasticity of the body's connective tissues. This means that when the skin stretches, it isn't able to bounce back to its original form, resulting in loose, hanging folds of skin. In the 1880s, little was known about what caused the condition. Today, we know dermatolysis can be hereditary, or it can be acquired later in life, often as a side effect of autoimmune disease, drug reactions, or conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Pachydermatosula, known today as plexiform neurofibroma, is a disorder of the nervous system that causes an excessive growth of tissue in the area surrounding the nerves. This results in tumorous masses under the skin. Once again, at the time, very little was known about the condition or what causes it. But Dr. Crocker believed that the dermatolysis and pachydermatosula were related in some way. On at least a few other occasions, the two skin disorders had been observed concurrently in the same patient. 
What made Joseph Merrick so unique was the presence of the third symptom, bone deformities. At the time, there hadn't been any recorded cases of bone overgrowth alongside the other two skin conditions. But Crocker had a theory about what might have happened. He reminded his colleagues of a presentation his mentor, Dr. Tilbury Fox, had given at one of their previous meetings. Dr. Fox had examined a case where a patient developed loose skin after a surgery. It was discovered that the nerves near the site of the incision had been damaged, and the parts of the body where the loose skin occurred were all connected to those damaged nerves. Dr. Treves knew that Joseph had injured his hip as a child, and his symptoms developed shortly afterwards. Was it possible that his skin and bone deformities were all rooted in damage to the nervous system? This suggestion might have been the key to putting the puzzle pieces together. But to test the hypothesis, Dr. Treves needed to examine his specimen more closely. The only problem was that Joseph Merrick had already left the country. Throughout 1885 and 86, the Elephant Man headline shows across Europe, and disappointingly, the reception was even worse than it had been in England. The police almost immediately drove him out of every city he visited for disturbing the peace. In June of 1886, the 23-year-old medical marvel landed in Brussels, where the exhibition was banned for being brutal, indecent, and immoral. After a full year of failure, the showman, Mr. Ferrari, gave up any hope that the elephant man would start turning a profit. It was time for the pair to part ways. Joseph woke up one morning to find himself alone. Mr. Ferrari was gone, and he'd taken the entirety of Joseph's savings with him. The showman had stolen all the money he'd worked so hard for, probably worth upwards of $10,000. He couldn't very easily go to the police. He could barely communicate in English, let alone in Dutch. He couldn't even show his face without inciting a riot. He was alone in Brussels, and all he had were the few possessions buried in his pockets. The portrait of his mother, the photographs that had been taken of him at the London hospital, and the calling card of Dr. Frederick Treves. Somehow, Joseph scraped together the money for travel fare and found his way back to London. He stepped off the train at Liverpool Street Station, still unsure exactly where he was going next. The freak show circuit was long dead. He'd promised himself he would never go back to the workhouse. He refused to rely on charity. And from the way people stared as he shuffled across the platform, it didn't seem like anyone was going to offer him any in the first place. Joseph's reverie was interrupted by a crowd of onlookers circling around, gawking at his misshapen, cloaked form. He couldn't get even a moment's rest. They pressed in, grabbing at his hat, at the gray burlap sack he'd taken to wearing over his head. It was hard to see anything out of the small islet. All he felt were bodies closing in, arms pulling him in different directions. There was shouting, confusion, police whistles. Then the burlap bag was pulled from his head, 
and there were a few bewildered officers staring back at him. Joseph tried to explain himself, but the police couldn't understand a word he was saying. Unsure what to do with the strange visitor, they pressed through the mob, carried him to the station, and pushed into the waiting room, barricading the door behind themselves. After catching their breath, the officers rummaged through the babbling creature's pockets for any clues to who or what he might be. A brief search turned up the card of one Frederick Treves, surgeon at the London Hospital. Two years after their first encounter, Frederick Treves would have another chance to solve the mystery of the Elephant Man. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll continue the story of Joseph Merrick and look at the possible medical explanations for his mysterious condition. Is it a genetic disorder? Was it caused by nerve damage from his childhood hip injury? Or perhaps, was he really cursed by his mother's close encounter with a circus elephant? We'll find out next week. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. (laughs) ¶¶